Woo-hoo. All right, everybody, welcome back to the Millennial Sales Podcast, episode 318. Uh, man, I am excited for today's episode. Nick Sigelski, freaking podcast legend, sales legend, um, co-host of the 30 Minutes of Presence Club podcast, Enterprise AE at Time by Ping. And, um, and he's become you know, a friend and, and someone that I certainly look up to in the game. Uh, has helped me out quite a bit in the last few months. So I loved chatting with Nick. We do talk sales, but we also really talk about his story, a very interesting entrepreneurial story starting in college um, and, uh, and going into you know, how he operates today. So I really think you're going to love this one. It's one of my favorite pods that I've done this year. Um, before we get to that, a quick word from our sponsor. A quick word from the sponsor of this podcast, which is the Up and Up community. It is a community that I just launched with my friend, Anthony Natoli. Um, it is a private sales community that's helping you all get not only crush your sales goals and your career goals, but also trying to stay fulfilled and mentally healthy and become a better person in the process, which is easier said than done. So if that's interesting to you, head over to patreon.com slash up and up, or hit me up on LinkedIn. My name's Tom Alamo. And uh, the link will be there in my the featured section of my profile, or uh, you could DM me with any questions. All right, everybody. Next on the Millennial Sales Podcast, we have my favorite sales podcaster or half of the duo, Nick Sigelski out in LA. Nick, how are you? I'm doing fantastic, Tom. I'm really excited for our conversation today. Me too. Me too. Um, I just complimented your uh, your small garden that you have behind you. And you also, for, for the folks that are watching on YouTube, you've got some nice merch before we get into the content. Let's, let's peep that merch. How do I get me one of those t-shirts? You know, it's a whole story with these shirts, Tom. We ordered, like, we tried doing a custom ink and then we didn't have enough people buy them. So like I had to buy an extra 40. And so I have 40 shirts sitting at my buddy's house. So if you want one, we'll send you one. I'll, I'll, I'll happily pay for it. I just want the merch. I want to rock it here in Chicago, home of the baby back rib and, uh, <laughs> and spread some word of mouth for you. Oh man. Yeah. I, uh, one day we're going to have like really, really nice merch for now. It's just a logo shirt. I love it. I love it. Um, so I'd love to, uh, you know, start this conversation based on actually how, um, you know, we really got connected and I've been a fan of, of, uh, yours and Armand's podcast for a while, but we didn't get connected so uh, a good friend of mine, uh, Ryan Warner, had you on his show, Wrestling Changed My Life. I heard it and uh, you just loved your background story of wrestling it, you know, coming, you know, growing up and then at USC. And then yeah, I think there's a lot of proponents of, you know, how sports relates to sales, which we'll get to. But I'd love for you to just talk a little bit about your experience and, uh, and bringing that to USC in college. Wrestling is a sport that has changed my life. I'll never forget on the very first day of practice, my wrestling coach said the very first thing that he said to the whole team. So it's, I'm nervous. I have no idea what to expect. And he's standing in front of the whole group. And he says, if you want to be a great wrestler, you've got to be disciplined. And the definition of discipline is doing what you don't want to do when you don't want to do it. And I mean, we're, we're more than a decade from when he first said that. And it's still ingrained in my head. And I hear that almost every single day in my head because it helps me when I have to make tough decisions and I have to choose, do I go down route A, B, or C? I think, well, what's the route that I don't want to go down? Because often um, what's hard and what's right are the same thing. And our brains will come up with a million and a half excuses to not do the tough thing. Um, But if becoming successful was easy, everybody would do it. And so, yeah, I mean, the sport changed my life. I I was a super, super committed wrestler in in high school and I was, uh, I made it to the New York state semifinals actually funny the guy who beat me in the semifinals recently uh, recently messaged me on LinkedIn because he saw one of my LinkedIn posts and so no I had this great back and forth with this guy that kicked my butt at the New York State wrestling tournament um, but that was kind of cool so anyways wrestling huge part of my life all through high school and I moved out to Southern California to go to college I got a full tuition scholarship to USC which was really exciting and great and I thought okay cool I'm going to leave behind the wrestling part of my life and move out to Southern California, and I'm going to surf, and there's palm trees, and like, it's the entertainment capital of of the United States, and I got out here, and I loved it. I loved USC. I was learning a ton. I really liked the people, but I really, really missed the sport of wrestling, and 
I was ready to give up and like transfer to any community college in the world that would take me so that I would, could go wrestle because I didn't realize how important that sport had been to me. And I remember calling my, my high school wrestling coach and like, I'm, cr I'm crying on the phone, Tom, like tears streaming down my face. I'm like, I want to go just wrestle. I really miss it. And he said two things that really changed my perspective. The first thing that he said, he said, Nick, if the biggest problem that you have in the world is that you can't wrestle, you really don't have it that bad. And that helped me a lot because something that I believe is um, your attitude is more important than your circumstances. And that sort of helped reorient mm. me around like that belief that I have. And then he said, but if you really want to wrestle so badly, instead of like transferring and going somewhere else just to join a team, why don't you try to make a team happen at USC? And it's a long, long, long story that took a ton of work, but I said, all right, let's do it. And so um, I, I started this club wrestling team at USC that ended up competing with all sorts of like junior college, community college wrestling programs. I got to wrestle some D1 guys even at, at open wrestling tournaments. Um, and so I, I like to say wrestling at USC was like wrestling at the community college level for four years, which was perfect. Yeah. It was great because I got to wrestle and I still got to compete and train hard. Um, but it wasn't like I was wrestling division one or something where it was truly 100% of my life. And actually... Fun fact, that's how I met Armand Farouk, who is my co-host of 30 Minutes to President's Club. Um, he was actually my wrestling training partner. He was one weight class above me. And so we went from punching each other in the face on the wrestling mat to punching each other on the face in real life and in, in business. So that's sort of the, the short wrestling story. I love it. Um, so, you know, one thing you mentioned at the top there, which I love that quote of, of what discipline is, not doing what you don't want to do when you don't want to do it. Yeah. You mentioned like, Every day, there's there's a million chances where there's path one, path two, path three, and you know I actually remember one of your posts uh, somewhat recently mm -hmm. has really stuck in my mind, which was uh, around hitting the snooze button and yep. uh, something around like why would you want to do the worst part of your day more than once? Mm -hmm. And uh, that to me that that says if you if you skip the snooze, that's kind of going down path A there. How often would you say on a on a daily basis that you because of your upbringing you go down path A? I'm, I'm sure you're not perfect, but um, you know, all those small things, the workouts, the eating healthy, the cold calls, yeah. the whatever it might be, like, how do you kind of think about that? And, and how frequently do you feel like you go down path A nowadays? Well, so I think the answer to your question is I don't live this like Spartan joyless existence. Yeah. I really enjoyed eating some cookie dough last night as I watched <laughs> a movie with my girlfriend. And so I don't advocate for, Hey, completely deprive yourself of things that like might not be good for you, but feel good, like eating cookie dough or watching three, three and a half episodes of a Netflix show in a row. So that's not it. But I don't know if I can give you a specific figure. I can tell you that the way that I think about the concept is that we have this almost bank account with ourselves. It's, um, it's actually a concept from the book, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, where he talks about something called the relationship bank account. When you have a relationship with somebody, you have deposits and withdrawals. If you're my friend, Tom, and I say, Tom, I really like your hat. Like, it looks good on you. That's like, that's a compliment I gave you. That's probably a plus. Or if I, if I pick you up from work when your car broke down, that's a positive. Or if I buy you lunch, that's a positive that adds to that bank account. If I lie to you or if I... Uh, make fun of you behind your back, or um, you know, if I'm a jerk to you or I'm rude to you, that's a withdrawal. And so all of our relationships that we have in our lives have a, a, a bank account associated with them and deposits and withdrawals associated with the, the way that we treat that relationship. And it's no different with ourselves. You have a relationship with yourself. And so when you face that tough decision of, okay, am I gonna hit the snooze or, I'm gonna, or will I get out of bed? You're either going to make a deposit or a withdrawal. And the way that I think about like sort of the decision-making framework for should I do this thing or not is I think a lot about like the promises that we make to ourselves. When I set my alarm the night before to say I'm going to get up at 5.30 in the morning, I made a promise to myself. I made a commitment to myself. And so if I choose to hit the snooze button in that scenario, I'm breaking that promise. And so that's a withdrawal. If I use the cookie dough example, on the other hand, though, like I haven't said to myself, oh, I'm never going to eat cookie dough or I'm trying to lose a certain amount of weight. Like that's not a thing in my head right now. And so I didn't break any promise in that scenario. And so I think that's probably the right, like the closest answer I could give you. But the thing is, oftentimes we expect ourselves to make like 
big decisions or big leaps of faith in our life. I'm going to move across the country to, to, to take this job, or I'm going to propose to this person, or I'm going to go off on my own and start my own business. And to make those really, really big leaps and those commitments to ourself requires you to have built this foundation where you actually trust yourself to go through with those things. And you cannot expect yourself to do those big, big things if you haven't even shown yourself that you can trust yourself to keep the promise of not hitting snooze in the morning. So that's the way that I think about commitments we make to ourselves. I think that's, that's so spot on. That's so money because I think a, a lot of us feel that way. It's like, well, once, once I get in the right circumstance, once I have the right job or the right money or the right this, then I'm going to start a business. Then I'm going to run the marathon. Then I'm going to whatever it might be, get the VP of sales job. Um, but the way that if you ask anyone that's done any of those things, it's the million small steps that lead up to it. That's why a book like, you know, Atomic Habits or, you know, a, a number of other ones have been at least important to me and, and a lot of the other guests I've had, um, because it just talks about the systems that you create and just doing the small daily disciplines that lead up to success in the long term. The work that you put in today adds up to the work that you put in tomorrow, adds up to the work that you put in on Thursday, adds up to the work that you put on Friday. And those things are cumulative. It's not this like big, massive, big break. Like people talk about things in the context of big breaks. I got offered that big job or I got lucky and stumbled across X. Like that stuff doesn't happen. And if it does, just consider that like your, your cherry on top. I think most of like the success that I've had in my life and my career is showing up and doing, doing the work to the best of my abilities every single day. Mm, that's so spot on. Um, so let's go back to your story before we, uh, before we move on from USC, you know, you're talking about, you know, you called your high school coach, you missed the game, um, all of that. I'm just curious as someone that, um, was a, was a fellow college athlete D2, nothing too crazy. Um, but you know, has, has definitely missed the sport as well. What about, wrestling was it do you think that like captivated you so much and that drew you back in because there's a lot of people that you know when they finish their high school career they're they're good and ready they're ready to wipe their yeah. hands clean and go drink some bush lights and do the regular college thing so I'm just curious I'm sure you did that too but I'm curious um, if there's anything about the sport and wrestling in particular being someone that's never done it um, that you feel like is particularly special I think so much of my personal value system is attached to things that I learned from the sport of wrestling. And so not being super close to the sport felt like I was also getting pulled away from the things that like, that's how I live my life. Like that discipline quote is really, really important to me. The other one, attitude is more important than your circumstances. That one is really important to me. Um, another one, uh, if it were easy, everybody would do it. That's something that's important to me. And those are things that like I can whip them off because those are things that guide my daily decision-making. And those are things that I learned from the sport of wrestling. And so to be pulled away from that, it was really, really tough. The other thing that I love about wrestling is I still get on the mat even today. And the reason that I love wrestling even today is I'll have a tough day at work and then I'll go wrestle and I'll get my shoulder cranked behind my neck. And I'm like, okay, I guess like making some cold calls wasn't that bad because, man, my shoulder's hurts a little bit. And so, I don't know. I love the the physicality of it. I love the, there's no, like, I, I also play in a men's soccer league now. So it's not like I'm only looking at things from the perspective of wrestling. But the reason that I think wrestling is really special is that it's like, it's just you and another person and there's no backup. And sometimes in wrestling, you win, not because you're like, you have the better technique or you're even stronger. It's that you just like sort of want it a little bit more and you, you grit through it a little bit more. And and I, and I like that. I feel like there's so many um, parallels to, to to life and work in that sport. Yeah, I, I feel the same way. I was a uh, I was a tennis player, and mm-hmm. so uh, a lot less physical, obviously, but the same kind of mentality of like one on one. You have no one else to blame. You know, the match can be three hours, and it's just like you gotta. Sometimes whoever can can outlast someone else. I think there's a lot of parallels. Well, um, the, the psychology there is really, really important. I, um, and tennis is one of those sports that it's very much like your mindset is incredibly important. And one of the things I learned from wrestling, and I bet you learned this from tennis, is the power of your self-talk. And mm. I believe that if we knew how powerful our thoughts were, we would never let ourselves think another negative thought again. And I learned in wrestling that if I went into the match thinking, well, that guy looks really strong and he has a lot of tattoos and he has chest hair and I sure don't, like... 
was going to get my butt kicked. And so I almost learned to artificially bombard my head with a bunch of positive thoughts. And I would literally sit there and lie to myself. I'd be like, I feel great today. I feel great today. And even though I didn't, even if I didn't feel great, even if I slept terribly and I had to cut a lot of weight for this tournament, like I would bombard my head with these thoughts about like telling myself that I felt great and I was ready to go and this was going to be a great match. And then lo and behold, I would go out and perform really, really well. And when I got caught in negative thinking, the inverse would happen. The other thing that I learned from wrestling that I, I, I promise you has applied to sales is I never wanted to lose a wrestling match because I wasn't trying to win the match. And what I mean by that is sometimes people will go out there and they'll be so afraid of losing that they don't go out and try to win. And when the match starts for me, I'm going after the guy right away. I'm not going to stand there and like feel my opponent out. Is this guy strong? What's he like? I would go right in and I would dive for his leg right away. And I would get it on his leg right away, even if it sometimes cost me in the beginning. And the reason that I did that, it was, I believe that if I was going to lose the match, I might as well go out, like go down swinging, go down, going after him. And the same thing has applied in sales where I'm like, I try to now bias for being more aggressive and just going after it. And I don't think you're ever going to lose a deal in sales if you like call somebody too much or follow up with them too much, but the inverse might happen. So it's taught me that like, I'm just going to be more and more and more aggressive. And sometimes the repercussions are negative, but I'd rather have that be my operating um, sort of perspective than, all right, I'm going to sort of wait and feel things out and see what happens. The mindset piece, the positive self-talk, the psychology, that actually is one of the most fascinating parts about um, athletics in general, I think. Yeah. I mean, I I think, you'd be hard pressed to find, you know, a good sales leader that would say, Hey, all of our reps are being way too aggressive. They're asking for the deal too much. The, the SDRs are making too many cold calls. You know, I think at some point, maybe you might get in your career where you, you push it too hard and you got to pull the reins back, but any good coach, I think would say they'd rather that than someone who's too skittish. Um, and, and that applies to life. You know, if you want to start a podcast, like, like you guys did, you know, look like what, two years ago now, um, you know, and we'll get to some more of your story in a second. Um, you know, you got to go for it and versus kind of sitting on your hands. And I think there's, there's billions of people that, you know, sit and wait around and wait for things to happen to them versus, you know, taking life uh, by the horn, so to say, and, and getting after, which to me brings, you know, a great point or a great question I wanted to ask, which is, uh, you know, coming out of USC, I saw SUP now, uh, which is a clever name. Uh, it sounds like you and Armand started that as a, as a supplement company in college. So I'd love to hear the story behind, you know, how and why you created that. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, what the timing was like with like when you were at USC and when you graduated um, with, with that business, because it looked like you were going for a couple of years there. Yeah. So the timing of it was so Armand was the one who came up with the idea for the business. So okay. what's up now was, was have you ever been in the airport and seen those like Best Buy vending machines that sell headphones? Mm-hmm. And so we had vending machines that were, they, they sort of looked like that, but instead of selling headphones, we were selling protein powder, like supplements. We sold protein powder and pre-workout. And so we didn't make any of these supplements, but we were selling them from a vending machine. And we would yeah. partner with different gyms in Southern California, put a vending machine on, on, on site, and then we would stock and make money from the machines. And Armand was a year ahead of me at USC. And he won a... Um, we were both part of the entrepreneurship program at USC. We both got entrepreneurship minors and he won an award for a top undergraduate business plan, his junior year. So this would have been my sophomore year at USC. And he came to me, I was his wrestling partner. And he said, Nick, like, I want to turn this from top undergraduate business plan to like top undergraduate business. I want to make this thing happen. Do you want to be my business partner? And I said, sure, thumbs up, let's do this. I had no idea what like, we were actually about to embark on. And um, I mean, long story short, we, we raised some money. We ultimately ended up having four machines in Southern California, all the way down to um, South Orange County. And I got to be the guy who was stocking the vending machines. We learned a lot. Like we, 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 we didn't realize that like to really make money in the vending business, you kind of need to scale. And four vending machines isn't, you're not going to make money off four. You're going to make yep. money off of 40, but we didn't really understand that. And so I was literally driving around SoCal in my Nissan Sentra with hundreds of dollars of these protein tubs in my car, yeah. <laughs> like stocking vending machines, racing back to class. And we learned, a, we learned a lot from that, but we ran that all the way through the end of my senior year. Armand ended up taking a, a full-time job. We were making money. The crazy thing is the business was profitable, 
but we weren't making enough from a scale perspective to cover both of our living expenses. And what we didn't realize, and I've learned this now, is that I would rather have a um, smaller piece of a bigger pie than keep everything to myself. So we raised some money, we got four machines, and then we were like, we're not going to raise anymore. We're going to hold this all ourselves. When we would have been better off giving away some of our equity to have a bigger business and have 400 machines, but we didn't really understand, at least I didn't understand that concept. So the business ultimately, we, like we wound it down and, and, and sold everything off and we returned as much money as we could to our in- investor. Um, but I learned a lot from that. You know, I sort of consider some of that the price of tuition where the stuff that I, Armand and I learned in that business that set the foundation for the other stuff that we've done. I mean, he and I have like, that was probably the most real venture that he and I started besides 30 minutes to president's club, but we've done lots of other things. Like um, I'm happy to tell you some of the wonderful Let's stories. Things that Let's, we, hear okay, so, Let's hear it. Let's hear it. So in, um, in Southern California, when people graduate from high school and college, they wear these like Hawaiian flower lays around their neck. Like their parents will buy them a flower lay, like what you might see at like a a luau or something. And Armand and I both went to USC and we knew like how USC's campus was laid out. And we said, we could make a lot of money selling flower lays because on campus, these vendors were selling them for like 60 bucks a lay. And we found that we could import these flower lays from Thailand for $7.50 per lay. And we could sell those lays for 20 or maybe even $15 if we really needed to get rid of them. And so we ordered like, I don't know, probably $1,000 worth of flower lays. And I stood, and this was Armand's graduation day, by the way, this was um, between my (laughs) junior and senior year, he was graduating. And so we stood on the corner at USC and we hawked flower lays for like two and a half hours. He's like, all right, man, like I have to be on stage in about eight minutes. He puts his stuff on it. I'm selling flower lace. We made a ton of money. I mean, we, we probably tripled our money that day, which was a ton of money to be a college student. I'm sitting on like yeah. an extra 1200 bucks in my pocket. And then we're like, let's do some more of this. Like this could last us all summer. And UCLA's graduation was only two weeks after USC's. And so we're like, okay, we're, we're going we're gonna to go double or nothing here. So we then order, like we take all of our profit and then some, all of my bank account, because it was a surefire thing. We made such money at it, such good money at SC. We're ordering thousands and thousands of dollars of these flower lays to sell at UCLA. The problem is USC's campus is laid out fundamentally differently than UCLA's. USC, it sort of has like a choke point to get onto campus. UCLA, that's not the case. UCLA, you need a permit to be selling on campus. USC did too. We, we stood just off, just, off, just off side of campus. So we're on the UCLA campus and we're like, all right, we're trying to sell these lays. And within three minutes, security freaking swarms us and physically removes <laughs> us from campus. And I'll never forget sitting on the curb. It's like 97 degrees, drenched in sweat, carrying suitcases full of flower lays <laughs> that we couldn't sell. And all of our money, was tied up in these lays and um we ultimately like went home and we put them all in my refrigerator which my roommate was not happy about i've got these lays in my refrigerator to try to preserve and um yeah we lost a lot of money doing that so (laughs) (sighs) but we learned you know we learned that the market conditions at usc are different than ucla and you shouldn't make assumptions that even though those two on the surface looked really similar. They're really similar universities, similar size, similar profile, totally different outcome. Yeah. So <clears throat> I'm curious with, with this type of, of mindset and, yeah. and taking more action at the age of, you know, 2021 20, than, than most your age at that point um, from an entrepreneurship perspective, what brought you into sales coming out of school rather than just like start another company and just, you know, try to try to make it work that way? Well, I didn't actually, I don't have it. I don't think I have it on my LinkedIn, but after I graduated from USC, I, I mean, I was broke, right? Because we'd been trying to run this company and yeah. hawking flower lays. And I was like, I'm sick of being broke. I'm sick of like doing this entrepreneurial thing. Um, so I actually took a job with, you're in Chicago, so you must know them, Aldi, the grocery store. Yeah, I took a job yeah. as a, um, a district manager for Aldi. And so they actually sent me to Buffalo, New York, which is only an hour from where I grew up. 
and they said, you're going to be a, a district manager, which basically means you're, um, you oversee four or five different stores and all of the staff there, but you like, they put you through this sort of rotational program where you spend a week working at the warehouse and you spend a week working as a cashier. And I was like, cool. Like I'm actually going to get to learn all elements of this business because I didn't have a lot of business acumen. I, I think I had a lot of grit and guts in starting those past businesses, selling lays and um, selling protein powder, but I didn't really understand yep. how a business functioned, the different um, functional responsibilities in a healthy business. And so I move out to Buffalo um, an hour from where I grew up and I dragged my girlfriend with me who um, my girlfriend had previously lived in four different cities, Chicago, LA, Beijing, and Tokyo. And so when I take her to Buffalo, She's like, not, what the not quite the same. Is? Like we get there and she was not happy with me. And I ended up making it about nine months there before I was like, oh man, like I, it was the opposite type of job where I'm strong. I'm really, really good at like, I think the influence side of sales and connecting with people and like the big strategy and like, like the work ethic. What I wasn't good at was like part of my job at Aldi was to walk the halls of the store, the aisles of the store, I guess, and make sure that everything was priced appropriately. And so I'd have to memorize that the goldfish were supposed to be $2.69 and tell the store manager, hey, it says $2.59, like a customer is going to be upset because you're going to ring it out. And like the cashier or the cash register will say a different price. My brain is not good at that stuff. My brain is yeah. not good there. And so I was doing stuff that like I wasn't great at, but I could sort of grit my way through. Um, and I was like, man, like, this isn't very fun. Like, I'm not great at it. I can sort of do it. And I make, I made good money. Like Aldi pays you really, really well, especially in your first couple of years. And I'm like, what the heck am I going to do? Because everything else that I saw out there was going to be way, way less, like entry-level jobs first out of college. And so the only thing that sort of paid comparable was, was selling. And I'd always been, despite my like sort of entrepreneurial background, had been adverse to the idea of like being a salesman. And because there's sort of a stigma about working yeah. in sales oh, yeah. and I wasn't going to do it. I was like looking for other district manager jobs back in California because my girlfriend wanted to move back. Um, and I got to give credit to Armand because he was actually working in corporate strategy at the time. He was like, dude, you'd be really, really good at sales. Like, why not at least give it a shot? And so I said, all right, I'm going to do it. And so I got an entry level like SDR job and I moved back to California. Um, and I'll give you sort of a fun story related to that. So we moved yep. back and like my girlfriend had been working at Starbucks in Buffalo and I'd put away a decent amount of money from the job. But like when we moved back to LA, all of our living expenses went back up. And so we were living really, really lean. And I had had a company car when I worked for Aldi, I had to return the company car. So we had one car between me and my girlfriend and anyone who lives in LA knows you, you kind of need a car for yourself. Like it's tough to get by as a couple with one car. We were living yep. in the San Fernando Valley in Encino and she was working in Santa Monica. And so she would take the car every day to Santa Monica. My job was in um, Agora Hills, which is just west of Calabasas. And it's about 12 miles away. The, the job was 12 miles from where we lived. And I didn't want to pay for another car. I could have afforded one, but I really didn't want to pay for one. And I also really, really, really did not want to ruin, kill my soul, crush my soul dealing with LA traffic. It's just depressing. Yeah. So I go online and I found one of those like electric assist bicycles, one that you still have to pedal, but like it gives you yeah. a boost of stuff. And every single day I rode my e-bike 12 miles each way to um, Agora Hills. And that was when I really started listening to podcasts because I wanted something to like sort of pass the time as I'm struggling away on the bike. And to be clear, like it's not one of those bikes where you just use a throttle and sort of sit there. Like it was still sort of a workout. And the fact that yeah. it, it's like the pace of like going for a brisk walk, I would say. So I'm biking yeah. like crazy. I was still lifting weights and I would listen to different podcasts while I would, um, while I would bike to work. And I was, I had no idea what I was doing like as an entry level salesperson, but podcasts were how I learned. And you can sort of see how things trickled from there. I just threw a ton at you. You might've follow up yeah. questions. I might. Um, so, so you, you start doing that. Um, you take over uh, as an SDR yep. with all that background of, I know you had a stigma against sales, but just with all that experience that you had uh, with sports, with entrepreneurship, uh, we kind of skated over the fact that you got a full ride to USC. 
uh, which I don't even think they'd let me mail them an application when I was in <laughs> high school. They would have just said return to sender. So uh, we won't embarrass you on that. But uh, see, you're very overqualified at that point for, you know, just a, an entry level SDR. Were you crushing it right off the bat? Heck no. I was terrible. I was terrible, <laughs> Tom. Um, and I think from a variety of different factors, like I think I should take some ownership. Like I did sort of have an ego where it was like, I started this company and like, I was like, I managed a team of like 60 people at Aldi. And here I am. And like, I remember the first day, like there was, it was a startup. Right. And so there was very much a startup. Like there was no onboarding, nothing, literally like the office manager walked me around, introduced me to some people and they sat me down at my computer. And I'm like, so what do I do? And the guy who had hired me, the director of sales had been fired a week before I started. So there was no, I didn't have a boss. And so one of the AEs was like, yeah, um, go read some of these articles. And so like, there was no real like formal onboarding. And so like, we didn't have, like, there wasn't even any tech or anything. So I'm like literally making cold calls out of this screwed up Salesforce database. And I just stumble and fumbled and bumbled along. Like what I decided to do though, I was like, I'm never going to be the lowest on the activity leaderboard. There was an activity leaderboard. And I'm like, I'm going to yeah. win that at least. And so I actually developed a lot of really, really good habits. I think I leaned really heavily on my wrestling stuff. But to answer your question, no, I was not good at first. I, yeah. We didn't have like a quota from a meetings book perspective. It was weird. Like the way I got comped in that job was on if I sourced a deal and that deal closed. And, wow. and so in my eight months there, I sourced one deal that closed and I made like 500 bucks commission, which don't get me wrong, like, I was happy to make any money, but it wasn't what I was like, you know, promised or sold on in this, in the sales process. And so it was super, super frustrating. I'd be sitting there just like attacking the phone and sending a ton of emails and LinkedIn spamming people. And I had no idea what I was doing. Um, but I knew that the thing that I could control, if I couldn't control like the training that I got was like, I could take ownership of, of as much of that as possible, which is why on those bike rides, I started listening to the sales podcasts. And it's why also I said, they're not going to fire the guy who's got the highest activity numbers. Cause nobody on that team was performing. It wasn't just me who was like sort of slogging along. Like everybody was like stumbling and not, not making commission because none of our deals were turning into closed revenue. So I said, all right, I'm going to, I'm going to win the activity leaderboard every single day. And I'm going to learn enough that I can sort of use this to parlay into getting an AE job because I'd listened mm. to enough sales podcasts that I was like, okay, like if I become an AE at like a real company, not this startup sort of like dwindling down, I think I can make some decent money there. And I think I could be good there because I saw the elements of where I was actually decent. And so I sort of made this plan probably six months in where it was like, okay, I'm going to like finish out the year and I'm going to start applying to like AE jobs and I bet I can get into one of those. And I did, but there might be things you want to ask me about the SDR job. So I'll stop talking for a second. Well, you know, I, I was curious about, um, you know, I have folks on the show. There seems to be, you know, there's a few different options. If you want to be in sales for the long term, you know, either you're going to be, and you're in SaaS or in software, you're either going to be, go down the path that you went down, which is, you know, enterprise AE, I want to close the big deals. Um, and, you know, the six, seven, eight figure deals, or you want to go down Armand's path, which is you want to get into leadership. And, you know, he's at, uh, you know, been a leader at, at multiple early stage companies. And sure, there's other things you can do, but those are like the two main ones that where I interview folks. I'm curious, um, what drove you to continue, you know, going through the AE route and trying to go like to enterprise, not trying, but successfully yep. get in enterprise yep. sales and focusing on that as, as your career? as opposed to going down the sales leadership road. Yeah. I think the thing that has done it for me recently was I really value like my freedom of time, maybe even more than like the, the money or the career uh, progression. If you look at title as being career progression. And I, I like the fact that like, usually the schedule that I work right now is I'll start working at, at like 6.45 in the morning and I'll work until like maybe 11 and then I'll go work out from like 11 until noon and then I'll take a shower and have some lunch. And like, I might take a two hour, maybe even a two and a half hour break in the middle of the day. And then when I get back in front of my computer, I'm like, it feels like a brand new day and I'm super, super fresh and I can 
get more done in that half day than a lot of people would in a full day because I basically have two super fresh moments where I'm, I'm ready yeah. to hit it in the morning. I relax. I do other stuff in the afternoon and I hit it in the evening. Now, it doesn't always work out that way. You end up having customer meetings or you record a podcast like this and your schedule doesn't always work. But if I can get there even 60% of the time, like that's a huge win. And I don't necessarily think you have the same flexibility if you're in a sales leadership position. Totally. Um, and so I actually, I mean, I like being on a team. I've actually been helping, we just hired some new BDRs at um, the company I work for, Ping. And so I've been helping them sort of onboard and ramp and learn things. And I really, really like that. Like, I love coaching. I've been a wrestling coach for a long time and I love mentoring people and teaching. Like that stuff really energizes me. But um, as it relates to the work that I'm doing right now, I, I do like that a lot of my own destiny is within my own control. Um, mm. And... <sighs> Yeah, you know, it, it, it's been an intentional decision. It doesn't mean that I wouldn't go down the sales leadership route. It just means that like for where I've been right now, the thing that I'm really, really focused on is I want flexibility related to my time and I want, like I want to make a lot of money and I'm able to do both of those right now. And so until that breaks, I don't think I see a reason to make a big substantive change. Yeah, yeah, I, I think um, I've been actually seeing things a similar way. I've always thought, you know, I have leadership tendencies I want to lead. Um, but a way that I can impact people's with this podcast and with doing things on LinkedIn and coaching and things like that, that are on the side. And, um, you know, so being an AE actually allows you to still, you know, make good money, have the freedom of time. I do something, not every day, but something similar to you in terms of like, I start early and whether it's for lunch or, you know, early afternoon, like I had a two hour cut this afternoon and went for a nice run and did the whole thing. And so I'm fresh for you know, the end of the day and then, you know, having this podcast with you. And so um, I think there's a lot to be said about that versus only trying to do it. If the only reason you're getting into the leadership roles for the title, um, you should not do it because the hours are, are really tough. There's a lot of extra effort that you have to have. You're impacting a lot of people's lives directly. So if you have some in, inner, internal kind of purpose to get there, um, that's great. But if it's just for the title, for the ego boost, um, I would highly suggest that folks maybe look down a route of, of an AE for a longer period of time um, with no shame to it. I mean, it's a, it's a great life, whether you want to uh, start something on the side, whether you just want to have more time with your family or to work out or to travel or whatever it may be. Um, there's just, there's a lot more freedom for sure. Well, the thing about being an AE too is, is you get like, one of the things I love about sales is that the thing, like I'm measured on outcomes, not on inputs. Like my boss doesn't yeah. look at how many calls did I make in a day or how many meetings did I have in a week. She looks at like, am I hitting my number? Am I closing the business that I'm supposed to be closing? And the great thing about sales is the more skilled you become at it, the easier it is to hit that outcome, right? Mm -hmm. I can I can accomplish in 10 cold calls, what a new BDR might need 25 to do. And I can accomplish in 10 demos what a less experienced AE might need 20 demos to do because I'm a much better demo or I have more sales skill. And so the great thing about becoming skilled as a salesperson is that I can get to my optimal result with less squeeze. What I mean by that is if my goal is to maximize the amount of free time that I have and I can get to my quota in 30 hours a week, I might just choose to work those 30 hours a week. Now, if yeah. I say, hey, I want to maximize the amount of money that I want to make, I might work 65 hours a week, but I'm going to make more in 65 hours a week in a week than what like a new AE might because their output totally. isn't the same. And so that's one of the things that I love about sales is it sort of gives me the optionality and it incentivizes me to skill up where other jobs, I think, might not necessarily do the same where you're measured on inputs like, time that you're actually working. I don't think that's a good analysis of like, is somebody making an impact or not? And so it's part of the reason that I really like being an AE is like, all I do is I focus on becoming the best salesperson that I can and working really, really hard to get to that goal. And then once I've hit my goal, I can make the decision of like this quarter, do I want to put, or this year, do I want to put my foot on the gas and max and, and optimize for income? Or do I want to optimize for other things like not working as hard and focusing and putting that effort towards improving other areas of my life like do I want yeah. to get in better shape this quarter or do I want to like improve the relationship that I have with my my girlfriend this quarter and like I don't think there's any shame in doing those things I still want to do a great like there's a sense of um responsibility I have to my company I'm not going to sit yeah. there at 75 percent to goal and like 
I did close good enough to not get fired, but like there's a cost benefit to everything. And so I love that about sales and I love that about being an IC and that like I have, I can make the decision in terms of like, what am I going to do with my time? Yeah, sales is one of the few roles where, you know, if you really develop the skill set and you're twice as good, you can make twice or with accelerators three or four times as much as, as you used to. Um, and if you're in, if you're a teacher, for example, that's not the case. The best teachers don't make, you know, five times more money than, than the worst teacher. That's just not how it works. So it's definitely something that you can optimize for. Um, I want to talk to you for a minute before we get to the rapid fires about 30 minutes of presence club. Like I said, uh, I'm a huge fan. I'm glad that we have two different styles, two different topics, because I wouldn't want to compete with you and Armand, uh, in the, uh, in the tactical 30 minute uh, genre. I'm just curious, it, it, it looked like you just announced or about to announce episode 100. So I think about two years or so of doing the pod. So, so major congrats on that. Just curious how that, you know, from all the other ventures you guys did together, how that started, you, you, you saw a gap in the market. Um, you wanted to use it as a networking excuse. Like what, what was the genesis of the pod? A little bit of everything. Um, so the real genesis comes back to like when I'm riding that e-bike to work, right. And I'm listening to yeah. sales podcasts to skill up and I, to, to, your, to your, your, your comment earlier about like the competition side of it. Like, I don't necessarily see all of it that way. I'm like, you could do the exact same thing that we would. And I think that would actually, the rising tide lifts all, all ships. Yeah. Like, um, but I do agree. Like it's, it, it's actually nice to come on a show like this and not have to be tactical, tactical, tactical the entire way through. Cause that can get a little tiring. Um, the way that we thought about it was a couple things. One, there was a networking component where I hate like traditional networking events where you drive 30 minutes, you put on your best polo shirt, you drink two beers, <laughs> it's eight o'clock at night, you eat a bunch of greasy French fries and chicken tenders, you don't feel good. And you met like one person who like, isn't really going to take you anywhere. And I wanted to, I think yeah. Armand and I both wanted to be like really selective about the people that we developed relationships with. But I don't really like traditional Zoom networking either. It's like, hey, nice to meet you. Tell me what you're all about. And so I think we saw the podcast as a medium to like have, it was almost like a forcing function where every single week we had to meet with somebody. Otherwise, there's no podcast to record. So that was part of it. There was a networking element. Um, But I did see a gap in the market where most of the podcasts that were giving sales advice, I thought you'd listen for 90 minutes and you get like one or two nuggets. Or you would get a guest who'd say something like, you got to sell value or you've got to sit on the same side of the table as the customer. And I'm like, I remember being a new SDR and being like, what does that mean? <laughs> like, how do I, how do I do that? How, yeah. like, I, I'll never forget that SDR job. Like I was like sort of semi working a deal and there was an objection the customer had around security. And like my boss was like, take it off the table, take the objection off the table. I'm like, what, what does that mean? I don't know what that means. I'm, I'm like, I'm, I'm willing to do it. I'm willing to do whatever you say, but I don't know what that means. And so we came at 30 minutes to president's club from the perspective of like, I, I just ask questions that I either have right now about selling or I had back then when I was a new SDR. And so, and we tell guests, you've been on the show, you were, you were phenomenal on it, Tom. Um, we Wait. only talk about things that salespeople can do, say, or write that very day, because otherwise like it doesn't actually help me. So that was the perspective from it originally. And then sort of the third part was we thought that we were going to use it as like this lead gen thing for like sales consulting. We were like, we can quit our jobs and do sales consulting. And like I did one, Armand and I did one consulting gig and we actually tracked the amount of time that we spent on the gig relative to what we made. And it was not very good. And I'm like, dude, I could go work at Starbucks and make this. So maybe not. <laughs> that um, ain't it. And so we learned this. So we said, all right, well, we're not going to do that. And I don't ultimately know what like the true monetization strategy will be, if, if any. Um, I do know that I, I learn a lot from the show and I appreciate the nice messages people send me. And um, I do like to hear myself talk, evidently. <laughs> yeah, who doesn't? Um, well, I, I appreciate what you guys are doing and uh, appreciate that you, you had me on the pod. Um, I want to hit you with a couple of rapid fires, let the audience know a little bit more about you. Um, we've talked about, talked about a couple books, uh, so far, big learners on this pod, curious, you know, any genre is fair game, but curious if there's any books, uh, outside of the ones we've mentioned that have really made an impact on you as, as a person or yeah. your career. Biggest one for me is the four hour work week, Tim Ferriss, love mm. the book. 
Love the idea of the 80-20 rule. My favorite part of that book is the idea of the deferred life plan, which is the idea that most people work thinking that they're going to, when they get to a magic number of net worth or they get to a certain age when they can retire, then they'll be happy and then they'll enjoy their life. And so they spend all of these years in misery thinking that when they get to this place, they're going to be happy. Um, and it's something that I've been really closely looking at in my own life recently where it's like, well, why can't I sort of do both? Why can't I be happy now? Like, what can I do now to feel good? So I love that. I mean, I love the idea of um, sort of putting blinders on that he talks about in the book and eliminating distractions of like, it's really easy to get caught up in the news or how your peers are doing relative to your goal or that person's more successful than me or, oh, look, here's my Facebook feed. And so like that's informed a lot of the um, decisions that I've made to reduce my, like cut out my information diet. And then my favorite part of the four hour work week is the law of diminishing returns, which means the more time and effort that you invest into something, actually the less return you get on that action, which seems sort of counterintuitive where it's like, wait, shouldn't it be the harder I work at something, the the better, like I like the more return I get from it. And like, so the idea behind it is the amount of work, I'm sorry, this is supposed to be rapid fire, but I'm giving you long fire. <laughs> the amount of work that it takes to go from being um, in the top 30% of something to the top 10% is way, way harder than it would like just to get to that top 30%. Uh, said yeah. differently, you might say, if you work out zero days a week, you don't work out at all. And then you start working out one day a week. You've increased the number of days per week you work out by one. You're going to get in better, like you're going to see more relative gain than if you're working out six days a week and you increase one day to seven days a week. Yeah. Right. And so you can use that strategy selectively in areas of your life where you want to see improvement, but you don't necessarily need to maximize. Right. Mm -hmm. Like I had a buddy who trained for, he, he competed in a bodybuilding show recently. And yeah. like, I look at myself, I'm like, okay, I'm in decent shape. I'm in pretty good shape. I, I feel good about where I am physically. And this was a guy I worked out with regularly. And I saw what he had to do to go from like where he and I were physically to getting bodybuilding ready. And he was doing like 10 times the amount of work that I did. And I'm like, yeah. okay, that's not an area that I want to apply extra effort. But what are other areas in my life where I'm essentially untrained, where I'm working out, working out zero days a week, where if I just go to one, I'm going to see a massive lift. And so I think about yeah. life from that lens frequently. Mm, that's interesting. Um, what goes on in the Nick Sigelski headphones music wise? I, I love Swayze. Swayze is like this <laughs> burnt out 2008. He had one. I mean, I love Swayze. <laughs> Phenomenal. Um, I've asked I like this question yeah. like probably 200 times and never gotten Swayze. No before, one says so. Swayze. You know what I like Swayze is it's just like, it's partying on the beach music. It's like, it's super, super relaxed. I mean, I really believe that the like music affects your um, mental and emotional state. Yeah. And I like Swayze because it like, it sort of brings me down. If you can't tell, like I'm up a lot. And so I like it. It sort of calms me down. It makes, it's what I would listen to before I competed in a wrestling match, actually, because mm. it, it loosened me up. It made me feel good. I felt like I was at a party and then I'd go out and like a lot of people like tense up before a wrestling match. I wanted to be loose. I wanted to be having a fun time. Yeah, I love it. Uh, what's something that you do outside of work to uh, recharge? I love riding my e-bike. I love riding my e-bike. I um, I take it up in the La Cunada Flint Ridge Hills, which is like this really nice, uh, expensive neighborhood in Northeast LA. And so um, I love riding that. I don't know why. It's uh, So I like doing that. I like wrestling. I write in my journal. I write in a journal every single night. That really helps me recharge because it like helps me get my thoughts in order. Do you do anything in particular with the journal or just, just kind of brain dump? Um, page one, it's just a brain dump. Like I put whatever is top of mind there. Sometimes it's nonsense. Sometimes it's like, I really have something in particular that I want to think through, but um, I try to do two pages every night, but I don't like have a, I don't beat myself up if I miss a night or if I, some nights I write way, way more. Some nights I'm like, come home from a party and it's 1am and I'm like, <laughs> you know, I get, I get three sentences and I'm like, ah, I'm going to bed, but tonight um, was fun. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, so no, I sort of brain dump for a little bit, but then something I always do is I write out my um, game plan for the day to come because it, yeah. it really lessens my anxiety around like, what time do I need to wake up? What's going on tomorrow? Like it, it sort of helps me put structure around the day. And I often identify, Oh, 
okay, like my day's shaped this way. I'm actually going to have a three-hour gap. Cool. I'm going to make sure that I like, I'm going to work out then. Or, okay, I have a super, super tightly packed day. I guess that means I won't be able to work out. So I was planning to take a rest day on Thursdays, but now I'm going to reshuffle that stuff around. So there's a lot of like planning and shuffling that goes into that. Um, One more book I'll I'll recommend for you. It was um, um, Ryan Holiday. I recently read a book, uh, Obstacle is the Way, which is a book about stoicism. But he has a book called The Daily Stoic, which is Mm. sort of like a meditation every day where it's like one passage with a tenant of stoicism. And you're supposed to like reflect on it and journal on it. And so I've been doing that in the mornings because that's something I've been trying to um, more intentionally bring into my life. That's my, that's probably my favorite author. I mean, really I think good. we, I think we wrapped on that for about a minute. Uh, I don't know if yep. it was on your pod or if it was after, but I think it was after uh, we were talking about it. Yeah. Huge, huge proponent. Um, my last rapid fire for you. Who do you want to see come on the millennial sales podcast next? <sighs> I mean, Armand is the really, really easy answer, isn't it? You haven't had him on. I mean, yet, Ar- Armand, where are you at, man? Come on. He doesn't. He doesn't do pod. He, he'll come on. He's yours. been ducking me. Uh, he ducks. He ducks me, man. It's hard <laughs> to get. He doesn't respond to my slacks. I've got to email him and write action required in the subject line. But um, no, I'd like. I'd like to see Armand on there. I think that's the, the best answer I got for you. Let's see, Armand. Let's see if he can do half as good a job as me, which probably, probably not that hard. I don't know how high I set the bar. <laughs> uh, <laughs> he probably can't. Um, that's his, that's me calling him out. There you um, go. Nick, Nick, before we hang up, first of all, thank you for coming on, sharing your wisdom, being a great role model for, uh, for the sales community. Before we let you go, best place for folks to catch you, whether it's LinkedIn or the pod or anything else. Yeah. Connect with me on LinkedIn. My first name's easy. It's Nick. My last name is a little tougher. It's Segelski, C-E-G-E-L-S-K-I. I accept all LinkedIn requests, except the ones where people are trying to sell me leads or, yeah. um, or Bitcoin. <laughs> so if you put that in your, um, your connection request, I, I probably won't accept, but everybody else, um, I will. I really appreciate having me on Tom and thank you for all the prep that you did and such a thoughtful interview. The sales community is lucky to have you, seriously. Yeah, I appreciate you, man. A quick word from the sponsor of this podcast, which is the Up and Up community. It is a community that I just launched with my friend, Anthony Natoli. Um, It is a private sales community that's helping you all get, not only crush your sales goals and your career goals, but also trying to stay fulfilled and mentally healthy and become a better person in the process, which is easier said than done. So if that's interesting to you, head over to patreon.com slash up and up, or hit me up on LinkedIn. My name's Tom Alemo, and uh, the link will be there in my the featured section of my profile, or uh, you could DM me with any questions.